And now, ladies and gentlemen, a touch of the past, present, and future, Vernon and Ryan. Golly, aren't the folks out there really wonderful? Ah, they certainly are, Eddie. You know, they, they give you the feeling of, well, they give you the feeling of old-time show business. No, I should say they do. And you know, Glenn, when you talk about old-time show business, uh -huh. there's one phase of it that you just cannot overlook. Uh -huh. And that is? <laughs> that is the minstrel days. Lou Dockstadter would come out on stage and... Lou would have a smudge of black on him right up there. Yeah, yeah, and George Primrose had one right down here. That's right, and oh gosh, there were a host of others. I'm tired of Contrary to what some people believe, the blues is not slave music. Although it was cultivated by the descendants of slaves, the blues was the expression of freed African Americans. The beginnings of the blues can be traced to the late 1860s, arguably the most vicious and violent period in the United States. Vigilante justice was at an all-time high, and by 1889, the lynching of African Americans surged dramatically. The blues men and blues women emerged in this difficult period along with the stories of folk heroes translated to song and the new venues in which the music would be performed. The blues did not speak of the life of the enslaved, but of the experiences of the freedmen and women during the periods of Reconstruction and Jim Crow. It spoke of cotton bales, gins, bull weevil, juke houses, and sharecropping. Farming and sharecropping were the starting places for most of the legendary blues musicians celebrated today, including Charlie Patton, Reuben Lacey, Sun House, Howling Wolf, Muddy Waters, and the most famous in recent generations, B.B. King. Now, Cow Cow Davenport was another singer to make an overt statement about going north to escape Jim Crow. Accompanied by B.T. Wingfield on cornet, he recorded Jim Crow Blues for Paramount in 1927. Ain't nothing in that cold country A green girl can I'm gonna get me a northern girl Baby, I am through with you Lord, but if I get up there well, I don't, I don't find no time Go and tell that false man I'm Lord, I'm ready to come back to my Okay, my name is Eric McCoy, and this is Walk a Mile in My Shoes. We're going to call this, what, season two of the show? Absolutely. Season two. I still two. walk in some of the weirdest and sometimes most uncomfortable shoes that we could find. Amen. Um, those <laughs> must be comfortable shoes. 
<laughs> I bet you could walk all day in shoes like those and not feel a thing. <laughs> right? <laughs> no, no, when it comes to us, <laughs> we're going to bring it and make you feel it. <laughs> yeah, I just totally thought about that when I said shoes. <laughs> Leave it. <laughs> I've always said there's an awful lot you can tell about a person by their shoes. <laughs> oh, it's great to be back in the saddle with you, man. <laughs> yeah. So yes, I'm with uh I'm with Lona Curry. That's right. I am Reverend L. C. Curry. I'm the transgender mentor, and I am super excited to be back in the saddle with this cat, Eric McCoy, for another season of Walk a Mile in My Shoes, man. We're talking about that some stuff that's we're already kicking it off man with with reverend that's right reverend i'm a reverend (laughs) i am a reverend i I was inspired by the um you know by our deal with with the westboro folks and i thought well if they can be reverends why can't i so here i am yeah i'm ordained and everything yeah well i'm an ordained minister so i can wed people yeah, we, we can wed and funeralize people. I mean, it just opens, broadens us up, man. And it's a nice, fancy title to have. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> okay, so I actually want to start out with, uh, I want to show you some cartoons real quick to get us kicked off before we even mm-hmm. really delve into the to what we're actually going to talk about. When the church bells ring their green. The typical aborigine, completely untouched by civilization and totally ignorant of our presence. How you know me, doctor? tobacco fields, but even more interesting are the tobacco workers, for as we approach, we find they have a strange new language of their own. Say, that's right, Purdy. Uh-oh. You forgot the stars. 
There's a cotton-picking Yankee in this crowd. Say, y'all, being a school teacher sure takes a lot of patience. Lots and lots of patience. And let me tell you something right now. Man, I ain't got any more. Step out of that shadow and introduce yourself to the folks here. Hey, Uncle Tom, here comes the green. Be where Uncle Tom is, or I'll whip you within an inch of your life. There you have the story of Uncle Tom's Bungalow. Or wow. Some old, some old cartoons, though, huh? It is. It's old cartoons, and the honest truth is I can remember watching like a lot of those. Yeah. Like even in, in our youth. But you and don't think about it either. You don't. You don't. And that's the whole sad part. Like I'm looking at it now and I'm thinking. Wow, what is the psychology of that that it does, you know, like that there's that unconscious thing that comes, you know, not only into us as children, but as young African-American youth watching those same cartoons. I mean, and then you look at it and you think it's old, but it's not that old. That's the scary part. It's not that old. Mm. So, so, yeah, obviously we're going to discuss a topic. That seems to be, I think, one of the most misunderstood pieces of U.S. history. Yes. And I, don't, I don't think, um, I even, like, I'll mention Jim Crow to somebody, and some mm -hmm. people don't even know what the hell I'm talking about. Yeah, 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 you know? yeah. I've encountered that myself. And since we love to speak about the reality of life, we yep. hope to shock some. Yep. <laughs> In 2017, yep. they're at the Southern Poverty Law Center which is a nonprofit organization that researches. And actually it's how I got Jeff scoop <laughs> yeah. on our show that you weren't there for, fortunately, <clears throat> but a nonprofit organization yes. that researches and monitors hate groups. And they looked mm -hmm. over 12 U S history books and surveyed more than 1700 social studies teachers and 1000 high school seniors to understand how American slavery is taught. Wow. And what is actually learned. I, I remember in high school, even when I was in high school, we weren't taught about slavery like the reality behind slavery. Yeah, me even growing up in the South, it was it was glossed over. We knew it happened, but the realities of it. And so there was widespread slavery illiteracy mm -hmm. <laughs> that were among students. And more yeah. than a third thought the Emancipation Proclamation formally ended slavery. Mm. But it was actually <laughs> the 13th Amendment. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But nearly 60% of teachers did not believe their textbooks' coverage of slavery was adequate. So even the teachers didn't think it was. 
And so in most teachings, slavery is treated like a sort of a, what, a dot on a timeline. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. A little dot, right? <laughs> a little dot, a little dot. <laughs> and at its best, slavery is taught because we have to explain the Civil War. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It's probably really it's the exactly only reason right. it's taught, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and so we tend to teach it like a Southern problem and a mm -hmm. backward economic institution. The North is industrialized. The South was locked in a backward agricultural system. And yep. about 92% of students did not know that slavery was the war's central cause. Yeah. It's yeah. crazy. Uh, I know. I know. It is absolutely, it's mind-blowing, man. I mean, it's really mind-blowing. And to, to, to see how it continues today mm -hmm. in, in so many different, areas uh, of our our life and and as open-minded and as as you know as, as fluid as you feel like you can be mm -hmm. there is still unconscious bias that lives in us and i don't think that we should feel guilt for the unconscious bias because it, it's more about acknowledging that and then and then trying to to even learn more and and it has been just eye-opening for me even getting to know my my amazing friend Kareth Foster who is redefining the topic of you know the diversity and equity but with a program called inversity you know mm -hmm. being able to have friends that are willing to be open and talk about these things have been so amazingly just I'm just so grateful mm -hmm. for that because I I didn't think I had any of those, but you know, yeah. there are, I mean, we do. I think you really have to understand the time frame too, you know, as a white yeah, person, yeah, yeah. right. As a white mm -hmm. person in the South, if you supported some of the black people, if you helped the black people, you could get lynched right. too. Yeah. Yeah. You and were it in happened the same time. I mean, there was Fair, you know, lynching, yeah. lynching did happen. It was more for on black people, but because we're white, you know, we obviously own slaves. Of course, I never owned a freaking slave in my life, you know, but even fighting for it back then could have got yeah, you killed. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we see that in, in a lot of today's stuff as well. You know, when we talk about even in the trans and the gay community, that's still something that lives in people, you know, like they're afraid to stand up and fight for something because even that association, but you're, you know, that this, this whole thing was built around fear and yeah. and I think the more and this, the reason why, you know, I believe we started doing this show in particular was to humanize these big subjects that created this this human understanding person to person. You yeah. know, it, it goes all the way back to our Westboro show, just having that moment to be human with another person. That's what makes these no matter things, how crazy she was. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. No matter far off that, that her <laughs> yeah. systems were you could understand why they were there and being able to kind of understand while they're there while it doesn't excuse bad behavior and, and hateful behavior what it does is it gives you a glimpse into the fear-mongering that goes on on both camps you know mm -hmm. and, and so yeah i mean we we tackle some stuff here that you know makes us unpopular in on any sure. side but absolutely but it, that's the point yeah that's the yeah, point i was thinking on this and i was thinking on this with the 
misinformation in the schools, right? Mm. And I think teachers and parents are afraid to frighten children, yeah, right? So I they awkwardly, that. you know, spin the history of the country. Yeah, they focus yeah. on a handful of heroes that we obviously talk about. Harriet Tubman, yeah, right. Whose right. Picture is, you know, tacked to bulletin bulletin boards during Black History right. Month and right. Women's History Month. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Elementary mm-hmm. school students learn about our nation's founders, but they do not learn that many of them own slaves. Right. But again, right. it goes back to the whole premise that if you lived in that time, what would you do? Yeah. It's it's so scary to think about, man. I mean, it's such a big subject to think about on on all sides, yeah. and and you know, it was just it was just maybe four weeks ago, I was having this discussion, the same discussion almost that we're having about school systems with my friend Kareth Foster, and it it was only in that moment that it dawned on me what it must have been like. You know, because I did, I grew up in the South. I grew up in very South Alabama and, and, and I went to a school that was very well mixed between, you know, white and black. So there was, you know, a, a, I just remember wondering and, and feeling empathy for what it must have been like for my black friends to be sitting in the same history classes that I was sitting in. Like, how did that, how must that have felt to them? Yeah. You know, and and I'm 40, I'm just turned 49 years old and I'm just having that that type of realization. Mm-hmm. So it's really wild, man. It's ooh. damn, you and I are the same age. Well, that's why we look so good. That's why <laughs> exactly. we look so good. We're rocking this thing. I'm not rocking this big, you know, like stress pimple. Nice. But, you know, uh, yeah, I noticed that. It's, okay. Can you see that? Yeah. Well, I I had to match you for last season's. Yeah, I was... <laughs> So I showed up with my own. <laughs> yeah. So many in our country, many in our country, believe that equality of black people was given immediately following the ratification of the Thirteenth Amendment, which opposed mm. slavery in the United States. But this is absolutely far from the truth. <laughs> so far, right? From for truth. Black Americans gaining the full rights of citizenship, and especially the right to vote was mm. central to securing true freedom and self-determination. Frederick Douglass was born into slavery in Maryland in 1818, escaped in 1838, and became a leader in the movement for the abolition of slavery. After the Civil War ended, he continued to advocate for the political rights of American blacks. He said, From the first, I saw no chance of bettering the condition of the freedmen until... He should cease to be merely a freedman and should become a citizen. I insisted that there was no safety for him, nor for anybody else in America, outside the American government, that to guard, protect, and maintain his liberty, the freedman should have the ballot, that the liberties of the American people were dependent upon the ballot box, the jury box, and the cartridge box, that without these, no class of people could live and flourish in this country. And this was now the word of the hour with me. And the word to which the people of the North willingly listened when I spoke, hence regarding as I did, the elective franchise as the one great power by which all civil rights are obtained, enjoyed, and maintained under the form of government, and the one without which freedom to any class is delusive, if not impossible. I set myself to work with whatever force and energy I possessed to secure this power for the recently emancipated millions. 
Yeah. And so after Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, obviously in April 1865, you had Andrew Johnson, who became mm. president, and he believed strongly in states' rights. Yeah. Yeah. So he showed great leniency toward white Southerners in his Reconstruction policy. And he required the former Confederate states to ratify the 13th Amendment and pledge loyalty to the Union. But he granted them free reign in reestablishing their post-war governments. Mm. This is where shit gets fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> so as a result, in 1865 to 66, most Southern state legislatures enacted restrictive laws known as black codes, which strictly governed black citizens, their behaviors, and denied them voting and other rights. Adult freedmen, the ones that were freed, were forced to sign contracts with their employers, who were many times their previous owners. And these contracts prevented African-Americans from working for more than one employer. Now, any former slaves that attempted to violate or evade these contracts were fined, beaten, or arrested for vagrancy. And then when they were arrested, many free black people were, were made to work for no wages, essentially mm. being reduced to the very definition of a slave. Yep. Yes. Yes. <laughs> that became legal slavery right there. Yeah. And so although slavery had been outlawed, again, by the 13th Amendment, it effectively continued in many southern states. And so Republicans in Congress were pissed, right, <laughs> arguing that the Black Codes went a long way toward reestablishing slavery in all but their actual name. Mm -hmm. and, and in 1866, Congress passed the Civil Rights Bill which aimed to build on the 13th Amendment and give black Americans the rights of citizens. But when Johnson vetoed the bill, <laughs> Congress overrode his veto, marking this is the first time in the nation's history that the major legislation became law over a presidential veto. Mm. And despite the Civil Rights Act of 1866 and Civil War amendments and the fact black codes were formally outlawed, their sentiment endured and morphed into a new racial ruling order. And so support for Reconstruction policies fell away after the early 1870s, undermined by the violence of white supremacist organizations such as the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah. And when Reconstruction ended in 1877, these freed people had seen little improvement in their economic and social status. And this set the foundation for the racially discriminatory Jim Crow segregation policies that impoverished generations of black people. This is what our topic is of today. And J the Jim Crow laws were a collection of a state and local statutes that legalized racial segregation. And it was named after a black minstrel show character yeah. And Thomas Dartmouth Rice, who was an American actor who regarded as the father of the minstrel show. And he created a song and dance, Jump Jim Crow, and first yeah. presented in Louisville in 1828, made him one of the most popular specialty performers of his day. And now this whole thing was intended as comic entertainment, blackface, 
as everybody always says that this is very racially discriminatory, performed by a group of white traveling musicians with black painted faces whose material caricatured the singing and dancing of slaves. And the form reached the pinnacle of its popularity between 1850 and 1870 when it enjoyed sizable audiences in both the United States and Britain. And although blackface gradually disappeared from the professional theaters and became purely a vehicle for amateurs, its influence endured in later entertainment genres and media, including vaudeville theater, radio and television programs, and the world music and motion picture industries of the 20 and 21st centuries. And this is what it looked like. Come listen, all you gals and boys, I'm just from Tuckahoe. I'm going to sing a little song, my name's Jim Crow. Wheel about and turn about and do just so. Every time I wheel about, I jump Jim Crow. I went down to the river, I didn't mean to stay, but there I saw so many gals I couldn't get away. Wheel about and turn about and do just so, every time I wheel about I jump Jim Crow. Give me back my clothes, please. And so it was that a young song and dance man, who was later belovedly known as Daddy Wright, All right. well, jump Jim Crow. Wow. Yeah, you think about it, just has not been that long ago. You know, it's like, yeah, I mean, people want, you know, expect black people to to jump over all of this. But if we know for a jump over Jim Crow. (laughs) Yeah, to jump over Jim Crow. Jim Crow, right? (laughs) Yeah, they expect them to do this. And yet we know that we carry seven generations of trauma in our bodies you know how do you of course you know the powers that be you want them to just oh just get over it just jump everything's fine now just yeah. just get over it let's just gloss over it and, well yeah because the jim crow went all the way into the 60s right jim crow laws they existed for about a hundred years from post civil war until Gosh. 1968 and they were meant to, you know, marginalize black people by again first denying them the right to vote. There's a lot of talk today, you know, about Jim Crow 2.0. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because all but three states have introduced bills aimed at restricting ballot access. Now, yes. I'm going to I'm going to show you really quick a video what we could call Jim Crow 1.0. Lawmakers could not violate the 15th Amendment, which prohibited states from denying anyone the right to vote because of race. So they devised obstacles that blacks could not overcome. States passed laws requiring voters to pay a tax or to prove that they own $500 worth of property. Other laws required people to pass literacy tests before they could cast a ballot. In state after state, from 1890 to 1904, every state in the Deep South, the 11 original Confederate states, held state constitutions which functionally disenfranchised black males from the right to vote. But the southern states made sure there were loopholes in these new laws for whites. One, called the Grandfather Clause, allowed whites to bypass the poll tax and literacy tests. The law said if their grandfather had voted, then they could vote. At the time, no black in the South 
had a grandfather who had voted. It was a gradual decision to obliterate the constitutional rights of millions of American citizens because of the color of their skin. And yet, it was a conscious decision the majority of white Southerners made because they had the power to do it. The Jim Crow laws ensured that the promise of Reconstruction remained unfulfilled in the South for decades to come. So I got a question on that for you. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's this whole argument that, you know, Texas and, you know, I guess Texas has passed law, uh, uh, Florida, uh, that whole Ron DeSantis guy, uh, Mm -hmm. Georgia, you know. um, Yeah. That had the most secure election ever but they still pass laws to you know (laughs) to do something but my question being is that you know i haven't really looked you know i haven't really looked firmly into the laws specifically what they are but i do know some of them are just like well there's less time to vote um they don't have as many drop boxes there's only one thing but my question being is that this covers this is for everybody though you know, so, I mean, uh, with the exception of what that video showed, you know, it's like you got the white exception, <laughs> you know, I can vote if my grandfather voted. Right. There's no exceptions in this. Right. So everybody has to fulfill or re- or do the same thing. Yeah. Am yeah. I right? Well, I think so. But, you know, we know that that, that fundamentally there's always going to be a willingness to sacrifice some for the greater good of others. And so when we when we when they lay out these blanket things that 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 are for everybody, mostly what it's going to affect are the majority of of black people and the poor, very poor whites. And and I I believe in in the southern states that their willingness to sacrifice the poor whites to continue to keep down all blacks is is basically just seems to be i don't know why they're so afraid to let go of of what all of this is you know like Mm -hmm. like i can't understand the in the need for to make there be some type of superior type of race i never have understood it but But that's basically what happens yeah but check this out though this is literally what is and this is what i see happening right is that you know the the Republican side is pissing off a lot of these de- Democrats, mm-hmm. the poor the poorer people too. You know, yeah. um, it, Georgia lost, Biden won in Georgia. <laughs> I mean, you, you think about this, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. and it, honestly, I see I see this. You know, I see the Republican Party just falling apart at some point. I mean, yeah. so much of the Republican Party yeah. is the older people. They're mm-hmm. dying. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And then you got, sure. and then you got, um, you know, them just doing all of these stupid stuff. They're, they're so extreme. It's getting so ridiculous. They're, gonna, they're pushing themselves out. Right. 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 Well, it's Trump, getting so Trump ridiculous. was such a fucking idiot that was... he, you know, if he had kept his mouth shut, right. And just done what a president is supposed to do. He'd be sitting in office today. I, more than likely so. Yeah. Because more than know, likely, I mean, so. normally the president that's in there always wins a second. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. typically the way it works. But 
it was it was Trump. He's a fucking idiot, you know? Well, yeah, and that's the <laughs> truth. And I see it happening like big time. Like just what you're saying, I, I truly agree in the fact that this this political and you know, of course, I see it coming for for a, a whole different reason. I see it coming because like this this form of of, of government continues this mentality that there are separate playing fields and that all men are not created equal and then there's a very big push to keep that narrative in effect and people are tired of the narrative we're getting to the point where we are starting to break away from that generational trauma that has lived within us and for me growing up in the south I saw it with my mom in in different ways. So, you know, I saw my mom be the first in her family to number one, you know, not get a divorce, but to get a divorce multiple times. I saw my mom be the first (laughs) female in her family to have a child out of wedlock. That'd be me. I saw her. You're a bastard. I am. I'm a bastard. (laughs) And, and I saw her be, you know, I saw her not as a women's lib type of person, but you start to see that generational trauma begin to change and evolve. And I think we're coming to a place and the young people of today. Mm-hmm. That's what I think all of the monument tearing down and all of that is, though. I don't think that erasing our history is is smart. It's not you're not going to you'll never do that, though. You can't. There's you no can't. way to erase history. Yeah, you can't. That's I mean, the Germany, problem. Germany would love to do that with the absolute Hitler. Oh, my gosh. They would <laughs> he, love he, never to hear about that again. Yeah, but, his, but it's his, not going to happen. Uh, he, he's never going away. <laughs> no, it's never. And it's ne- and this is never going away. You know, for America, this is never going away. And I think that as we f- continue to fight in the same the same ways, we're continuing to see that it had it didn't work then. It ain't working now. There's a new system and a new program. And I think we always start, we always start in schools. You know what I mean? Like we're always either going to force this information or this when there is a better way, I think, to come at it. But the South, I believe, will, they're holding on to a sinking ship. And so many of them are going to hold it until it drowns. You know, they're going to drown with it. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, the the statues, the Confederate flag uh, or the rebel flag or the, you know, we, we as we did that show on that, this is heritage. Oh, I mean, so slavery is heritage. Right. <laughs> right. And I see that every day, still yeah. in my life, every day. According to the Southern Poverty Law Center, which maintains a list of the monuments, the memorials are spread over 31 states plus the District of Columbia which far supersedes the 11 Confederate states that succeeded at the outset of the Civil War. Most of the monuments did not go up immediately after the war's end in 1865. The vast majority of them were built between the 1890s and 1950s, which matches up exactly with the era of what we're speaking about today, the Jim Crow segregation. All of these monuments were there to teach values to people. The values the monument stood for included a glorification of the cause of the Civil War. White women were instrumental in raising funds to build these Confederate monuments. The United Daughters of the Confederacy, founded
founded in the 1890s, was probably the most important and influential group. In fact, the group was responsible for creating what is basically the Mount Rushmore of the Confederacy, a gigantic stone carving of Davis, Lee, and Jackson in Stone Mountain, Georgia. Its production began in the 1910s, and it was completed in the 1960s. The backlash to the Civil Rights Movement was spreading Confederate symbols in other ways. In 1956, Georgia redesigned its state flag to include the Confederate battle flag. And in 1962, South Carolina placed the flag atop its Capitol building. In a 2016 report, the Southern Poverty Law Center said that the country's more than 700 monuments were part of roughly 1,500 symbols of the Confederacy in public spaces. Now, protesters and city officials have gradually taken down statues in multiple towns and cities. The Southern Poverty Law Center estimates that as of February 2019, there were at least 138 Confederate symbols that had been removed from public spaces since 2015. More statues were targeted following protests over the police killing of George Floyd. On June 9, 2020, Protesters toppled a statue of Confederate President Jefferson Davis in Richmond, Virginia. September 8, 2021, a 12-ton statue of Confederate General Robert E. Lee was removed more than 130 years after it was installed in Richmond, the former capital of the Confederacy. They're really prevalent here in the South. And I think what I would like to see is instead of us continue to, to, we know they're bad. We know they're bad. We know what, what happened is really, really bad. I would like to see some erecting of statues of, and, and a celebrating because let's be honest, you know, black people built at our country with their sweat and equity, not of their own choice. I would like to see that celebrated. I would like to, to see, you know, our country as a whole, so into those that their ancestors, I mean, what they went through. And I would love to be able to see that be honored versus just the, the, the fighting. I mean, let's stand something right beside these People. I was just thinking yeah. about can do you think we wouldn't have a train we wouldn't have train tracks nothing nothing we wouldn't nothing. have trains that run across the country <laughs> absolutely not absolutely not railroads bought slaves both in large groups and one at a time the Richmond and Petersburg listed 114 slaves on its payroll of 191 employees in 1864 the railroad purchased its first slave in 1856 for one thousand seventy dollars listing the expense in its annual report as a Negro man purchased. By 1860, some railroads were buying slaves by the dozens. The Mississippi Central bought 21 slaves in one purchase and 31 in another in 1860. By the 1860s, the Southern Railroads were among the largest slaveholding and slave-employing entities in the region. And here's a bill of sale for South Carolina slaves. It was February 27, 1827. And this is what it says. Whereas the Honorable Court of Equity, by their decree made at Charleston during January sitting, 1827, did direct that certain Negroes belonging to the estate of Arnoldus Vanderhorst, deceased, 
should be sold by the master of the said court on terms in said decree, specified all of which will more particularly appear on the reference to the registry of the court. And whereas at a sale of the said Negroes before me as master in equity at Charleston on the 22nd day of February, 1827, the following Negro slaves named Dolly, Jack, Jenny, Grace, Dina, Liddy, John, and an infant, Paul Hager, Jack, and Jane, purchased by Edward Frost for the sum of $3,020. By the said Edward Frost, paid, do hereby bargain and sell unto the said Edward Frost, the above something Negro, to have and to hold the said Negro together with the further issue of the females to the only proper use of the said Edward Frost, his heirs, executors, administrators, and assigns, in witness whereof I have hereunto set my hand and seal this 22nd day of February in the year of our Lord, 1827. And again, the bill describes the sale of a dozen South Carolina slaves, Dolly, Jack, Jenny, Grace, Dina, Liddy, John, and an infant, Paul, Hager, Jack, and Jane, from the estate of Arnoldus Vanderhorst, deceased, to Edward Frost for $3,020. Frost was president of the Blue Ridge Railroad in South Carolina. And though they did not choose, you know, to, to, to be here, to come here and do that work, we can't erase that. But my God, can we celebrate that? Can we celebrate that? Can we yeah. celebrate these human beings? Can we help? build up the the generations and the children of these human beings and help them be proud of where you know their ancestors came from versus you know it always being this big stain i don't mean to make i'm not making light of it and i don't want to erase the terribleness of it but we've we have talked a lot about that and i would love to change the narrative into how do we celebrate this these people and how do we create a generation to be proud yeah i mean it's you know, you know the, the challenging part is that it was horrible very horrible jeez i didn't have anything horrible. to do with it none of the people yeah. that are alive today were there now as far as the slavery goes but not as far as the jim crow now obviously yeah. we do have plenty yeah. of people alive today that experienced the jim crow yes um, and yes. again those who defied it faced getting arrested fines jails sentences violence and of course even death Death. Yeah. Yeah. Lynchings. Now, lynching is the public killing of an individual who's not received any due process. Yep. And so the executions were often uh, carried out by lawless mobs. So, where did the term lynching come from? Now, here's a great example of working to validate information by reputable sources versus Facebook, memes, or Wikipedia. And I came across a highly misunderstood version of this story from Atlanta Black Star that says, let me add that the proper term for this type of killings is called hanging, not lynching. The etymology of lynch came from Willie Lynch, who created a vigilante group to keep order during the slave rebellions. By their definition, lynch means extra legal execution by hanging. In other words, they took it a step further to make a point. Also, the fact that this term is still being used is a form of dehumanizing 
the victims. Whites get hanged. It's called a murder or suicide. But blacks get hanged. It's called lynched. That's called word games, meaning black lives are of no importance. Now, what this individual is referring to is what is known as the Willie Lynch letter that refers to a speech given by a slave owner detailing how Virginia slave owners can better keep their slaves under check. And speaking of exposing the fake, let's talk about Willie Lynch, Big Willie, Massa Lynch. The infamous letter that caught the internet by storm. Now this letter supposedly accounts for Willie Lynch giving a speech about how to keep blacks enslaved for a minimum of 300 years. Now this letter has been referenced in movies, speeches, songs, and if you have the time or even if you don't, some fierce debates on the internet. Willie Lynch wasn't real. Nope, he was not a real person. And if you already know this, then I am sure you have endured the same pain as I have when you tell people this. So, for those of you who may not know, the letter was originally obtained from the St. Louis Black Pages from publisher Howard Denson. He at the time also confirmed that he could not locate the source of this letter. It was then added to the University of Missouri St. Louis's Gopher server in 1993 by librarian Ann Taylor. She too initially thought that the letter was real, but after closer examination, she decided to send it out to a few well-respected professors and found some interesting anachronisms and inconsistencies. One of the most obvious inconsistencies was the man himself, Willie Lynch, Big Willie. There was no record of him, at least not in 1712. A man named Willie Lynch was born years later, but that's not the Willie Lynch that gets all of the attention. Second red flag that this letter is probably an urban myth. Certain words that were mentioned in the speech like refueling and foolproof didn't become part of the American lexicon until the 20th century. The third clue that Willie Lynch probably wasn't real were some of the tactics that he suggested using in the first place. Age, gender, color. Yes, age, gender, color are huge dividers amongst people of color today. But according to Dr. William Pearson, the professor of history at Fisk University, during that time, disrespecting the elders was a no-no. And many people who read this document today assume that the way things are now was the way things were then. Plus, the biggest dividers amongst enslaved people during that time was not skin color, it was nationality. Last sign that the Willie Lynch letter might be a big old hoax. The librarian, Ann Taylor, who put the letter up in the first place, kinda said so. And the term lynching is now actually believed to derive from the name of Charles Lynch, a Virginia planter who presided over an irregular and unofficial court during the Revolutionary War. Lynch's use of extra-legal measures to punish those loyal to the British crown helped to inspire mobs in later years to administer their own form of vigilante justice outside the courts. Eventually, the term came to describe cases where supposed offenders were executed through mob violence without a proper trial and outside of legal jurisdiction. The most famous examples of these executions in the U.S. where the victim was hanged due to the relatively large number of photographic evidence. However, they were also cases 
where the victims were shot, burned, or tortured, and dismembered. In the early years of U.S. independence, lynching was most common along the frontier and in western territories, most likely due to the lack of established or immediate judicial systems, and most studies suggest that these victims were mostly white and Mexican. Possibly the largest case of lynching and largest case of mass hanging in the United States was in Texas in 1862 in what is known as the Great Hanging of Gainesville. This was where local slaveholders organized the mob hanging of 41 white men and shot three others due to their supposed allegiance to the Union. Following the American Civil War, however, lynching became mostly linked with racial inequality and white supremacy in the southern states of the U.S., and black Americans made up the vast majority of lynching victims from 1886 onwards. Anybody that would go watch that is crazy. I you know. Yeah. I can't, I can't even can't imagine, imagine it. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. And so lynchings were, again, violent public acts that white people used to terrorize and control black people yep. in the 19th and the 20th centuries particularly mostly in the South. It was very psychological because it wasn't just for that person that was being murdered. Oh, yeah. It was now for everyone yeah. around to. This will be you if you don't get your shit together. Yep, exactly. And so lynchings typically evoked images of, again, black men and women hanging from trees, but they did involve other extreme brutality, such as torture, mutilation, decapitation, yes, uh, desecration. Some victims were burned alive. Yes, skinning, yeah. A typical lynching involved a criminal accusation. So there was an arrest, and the mob would would assemble, followed by seizure, physical torment, and murder of the victim. Lynchings were often public spectacles, typically attended by white communities in celebration of white supremacy. Now, remember the guy with the KKK? Yeah. KKK never ever did a lynch that's right try to find a that's right that's right (laughs) (laughs) and so photos of lynchings were often sold as souvenir postcards (laughs) but yes they were not of kkk outfits i'm sure they were all kkk but not in their outfits (laughs) right right now don't wear your uniform to this from 1882 to 1968 there were 4743 lynchings that occurred in the u.s according to records that were maintained by the NAACP. Highest number of lynchings during that time period occurred in Mississippi with 581 recorded. Georgia was second with 531. And Texas was third with 493. Um, And lynchings did not occur in every state. There are no recorded lynchings in Arizona, Idaho, Maine, Nevada, South Dakota, uh, Vermont, and Wisconsin. Black people were the primary victims of lynchings, 3,446, or about 72% of the people lynched were black, but they weren't the only victims. Um, Some white people were lynched for helping black people or for being anti-lynching immigrants from Mexico, China, Australia, and other countries uh, were also lynched. White mobs often used some crazy, you know, criminal accusation to justify lynching. Uh, looked common, at my wife. Yeah, the common claim used to lynch black men was perceived sexual transgressions against white women. Right, right. Charges of rape were routinely fabricated. 
these allegations were used to enforce segregation and advance stereotypes of black men as violent, hypersexual yep. aggressors. Yep. Hundreds of black people were lynched based on accusations of other crimes, including mm. murder, arson, robbery, vagrancy. And many victims of lynchings were murdered without being accused of any crime. Wow. They were killed for violating social customs or racial expectations, such as speaking to white people with less respect than what white people believe that they were owed. The Waco Horror, I don't know if you'd heard of that one, that featured the brutal images of the lynchings of Jesse Washington. These images paint a picture of what happened to this guy. And I want to clearly paint that picture of Jesse Washington. I want to never forget what happened to this poor boy. Even if he was guilty, which is highly doubtful, he should never have had to deal with the punishment that he was about to endure. The exciting occurrence was how it was mentioned in a Waco, Texas newspaper on May 16, 1916. Of the 492 lynchings that occurred in Texas between 1882 and 1930, the incident that perhaps received the greatest notoriety, both statewide and nationally, was the mutilation and burning of an illiterate 17-year-old black farmhand named Jesse Washington by a white mob in Waco, Texas, on May 15, 1916, an event sometimes dubbed the Waco Horror. Washington was arrested on May 8, 1916, and charged with bludgeoning to death 53-year-old Lucy Fryer, who was the wife of a white farmer in Robinson, a small community seven miles south of Waco. After confessing that he had both raped and murdered Mrs. Fryer, Washington was transferred to the Dallas County Jail by McClendon County Sheriff Samuel Fleming, who hoped to prevent mob action at least until the accused could have his day in court. Washington's trial began in Waco on May 15th in the 54th District Court with Judge Richard Monroe presiding over a courtroom filled to capacity. After hearing the evidence, the jury of 12 white men deliberated for only four minutes before returning a guilty verdict against the defendant and assessing the death penalty. Now, before the law officers could remove Washington from the courtroom, a group of white spectators surged forward and seized the convicted youth. They hurried him down the stairs at the rear of the courthouse where a crowd of about 400 people waited in the alley. A chain was thrown around Washington's neck and he was dragged toward the city hall where another group of vigilantes had gathered to build a bonfire. The chain around Washington's neck was thrown over a branch of the tree. Coal oil was poured over him and a fire lit in the box. He was lowered into and out of the fire by the chain as members of the mob chopped off his fingers, toes, and other parts of his body. It is speculated that he is still alive in this photo. Some of these body parts were kept in formaldehyde and shown off as treasured souvenirs for years. The lynching violated Texas law. No members of the Waco mob were ever prosecuted. Yeah, there was there was a, a black man who went to his boss and asked him for some time off to because his mother was dying and he asked him for an advance in pay so that he could travel to see her. The of course white man with got angry, he pulls a gun out on him and the guy slings his axe 
And the axe actually hits the white man, kills him instantly. And now there's this big witch hunt for this murderous black man. And then, of course, you know, they catch him and they, they, you know, they tie him up. They cover him in grease. They put him on the fire. They burn him. Before they do, they cut his ears off. They cut his penis off. They skin his face. I mean, because there was this notion that that black people and this came through slavery up through slavery did not feel pain the same as white people felt pain and so it, it gave them like this excuse that they could torture these human beings because of their belief that they didn't feel pain and, and there's a lot of unconscious bias that still lives in a lot of medical professionals today you know you can see especially when it comes to you know pregnant pregnant black women um there's still a lot of this that comes that there's these generational beliefs that they don't feel pain the same way but but yeah that and it's I, just I, I, so fucked up you know it's so fucked up and it also makes you think there's so many accounts of of cutting off of penises is there like the were they like did they have penis well, because envy? because What's if it deal? was it was rape Oh, okay. Right. But there's so just now, so many, so like so many accounts of, of that. He was accused of rape. and So know, that was a, okay. So in yes. 1955, right? 14-year-old Emmett Till yep. was brutally murdered for allegedly flirting with a white woman. The NAACP declared his murder a lynching. Mm. An all-white jury acquitted the two men accused who later bragged yeah. about their crimes in a magazine article. Yeah. Yeah. His mother decided to hold an open casket funeral, put her son's yes. body on display for the world to see. Um, Jet Magazine published the photos of the body in the casket, along with the headline, Negro Boy Was Killed for Wolf Whistle. Yes, yes, it was a wolf whistle. And later, so I just listened to um, a a podcast that that surrounded that whole entire case from start to finish and uh, a reporter at one point got the ended up talking with the the white woman who caused the ruckus in the first place mm -hmm. and she ended up recanting yep. her story yep. but then never would go on record with it how fucked up is that isn't it you know isn't it isn't that isn't lying it? uh lying in on under oath yeah yeah, that would be absolute perjury, and and yet, you know. So now, of course, that? we might we might think of lynchings as a disgraceful and barbaric practice from the past, but of course, they do continue to this day. In mm -hmm. 1998, James Beard was chained to a car by three yep. white supremacists and dragged to his death in the streets of Jasper, Texas. Yep. Uh, in 2020, Ahmad. Arbery was fatally shot while jogging near Brunswick, Georgia. And the three white men charged with killing claimed he was trespassing. Uh, of course, now we, and of course we've got the videotaped death of George Floyd. That was, of course, I guess we could maybe call a modern day lynching. He was killed yeah. in broad daylight by police officer, Derek Chauvin, who held him down with a knee on his neck for yep. more than nine minutes. Do we still see it? Yep. Yep. I personally, and I want to, I want to touch on this for a second. I personally find this idea about, we talk about systemic racism or institutional racism, not mm -hmm. existing. Right? That's what everybody <laughs> claims. It doesn't exist. I think that's bullshit. That's absolute bullshit. Now, 
tell me if I'm seeing this wrong, because this show isn't always arguing right or wrong, but in right. some cases, just seeing if we can find discrepancies or problems in the arguments that people use, right? Yes. Yep. Okay. Absolutely. Now, have you heard of Larry Elder? <laughs> a, bit, a bit, a bit. I don't know a whole bunch. So but Larry yes. Elder is an American right-wing political commentator, conservative talk radio host. Mm-hmm. He's in California. So oh. I want to show you a video real quick. Well, systemic racism means top-down stuff, uh, the way it used to be during Jim Crow. Uh, I, I'd ask you to give me the example of, of a corporation, Fortune 500 corporation, an institution, uh, college, media, uh, uh, military, where there's top-down racism. You can't come up with it. The, the, the uh, media is relentlessly left-wing. Academia, same thing. The military uh, is quite diverse. Give me, give me the name. Name the corporation. Whenever there, whenever there's a corporation where somebody says something arguably racist, like Texaco did a few years ago, CEO on tape referring to the employees as I don't think he said N word, but he said something disparaging. Mm-hmm. Goes on TV, apologizes. Texaco loses hundreds of millions of dollars uh, in equity, uh, and then they be, end up having a program to advance the. Uh, the careers of the black employees at Texaco. Uh, Papa John, remember that he was on a call oh, one yeah. time, he said something, uh, he, was, he was quoting somebody else and said the N-word, lost his own company. Uh, there, John, there's a guy named John O'Sullivan, he used to be the editor of the National Review. He said, white racism exists, but its social power is weak. The social power against it, overwhelming. There's no upside today in any corporation blatantly, openly, even subtly being racist. It turns out that Ferguson is 67% black, but 85% of the traffic stops were of black people. 18-point gap, ergo systemic racism. Apply that same logic to New York. New York is 25% black, but almost 55% of the traffic stops are black people. That's a 30-point gap, even bigger than Ferguson, yet NYPD officers, street officers, majority of them are people of color. Turns out that Obama did a study called Race and Traffic Stop, came out in 2013 by the National Institutes of Justice, which is a research arm of the DOJ, and you name the traffic offense, a black motorist was more likely to violate it, whether it was speeding, driving without a, uh, without a, with an expired tag, driving without a proper headlight, uh, driving without a seatbelt, driving without a, a child safety seat in the back when you have a kid, you name the offense, black motorists were more likely to commit the offense. Stop committing crimes. If, you're, if, you're, if your taillight is busted, fix it. Don't expect people to give you some slack just because you're black. Fix it. Take responsibility. <laughs> okay. Uh, I got so many problems with that video. Okay. Yeah. You know, one is like, you know, the Texaco thing. All right. If That does not say, like, just because I go out and I start up a program <laughs> against racism. Oh, yeah. Right. We're racist. We're not racist, you know, because we're not racist. Racist. they have these programs that are in place. And so. Right. You know, that completely makes us not racist. Right, right. Because <laughs> the, the black man is asking for you to continue to make special conveniences for him. Absolutely yeah. not. The black man is asking for an equal an equal place at the table. Yeah. You know, it's it's equal. Yeah. It, and you know, and not- that whole thing on the traffic stuff, I mean, seriously. <laughs> there, yeah, right. You know what I mean? I know, man. I know. And then we go back again. You know, let's say let's say those numbers are true and a black motorist is more likely to have a broken tail light. 
I worked overnight. I think I've said this here before, and I'll never forget this. I worked overnight in a in a town close to me at a convenience store, and the the cops that were out in this town would stop through there overnights, and I got to have these long conversations. And he let me know that he had a book that was about this thick of all of the most ridiculous things he can do to pull someone over that he's profiled. And he would tell me if I see a group of black guys riding around at two or three o'clock in the morning, all I got to do is thumb through my little book and find a reason to pull them over. Not that they did something, but because there are a car full of black guys riding around at 2 a.m. Yep. Absolutely. There's their crime. There's their crime. There's their crime. They're not racist, though. They're not. He's not racist, of course, because there's a thing in the book. You know, he had a reason to stop. There's all black colleges. There's all black churches. Nobody complains. But if whites have all black, all white college, all white church, they're racist. I think it comes from a history of the fact that they had to because of segregation. They had to establish their own schools and churches. Yeah. African-Americans. Well, that's true. And everybody got along good back then. Sorry, say that again. Just segregation. Everybody got along good. Is the South more racist? I South ain't racist. No. I South ain't racist. No. I South ain't racist. No. And there you have it. From the man wearing <laughs> the Confederate himself. flag shirt. That's the best From thing he's the done all year. Wearing the Confederate flag shirt. South <laughs> <laughs> not racist. See, they say it. They're not racist. They're not racist. Yeah. You got to believe them. Yeah. They said it. It must be true. Jeez. <laughs> so, so the world I live in obviously is in substance abuse. Yes. And the hypocrisy, of course, is stunning. Yes. And departing from the realized images of crack users. Um, <laughs> you know, the data from the National Institute on Drug Abuse shows that people reporting cocaine use in 1991 were 75% white, 15% black. And 10% Hispanic. People who admitted to using crack were 52% white, 38% black, and 10% Hispanic. Wow. Now compare that to U.S. Sentencing Commission data. Mm. 79% of 5,669 sentenced crack offenders were black. 10% were Hispanic, and only 10% were white. Wow. And and remember the campaigns that were happening then, like where they were showing us all the footage on TV. Oh yeah, they weren't showing. They white, weren't showing crack white people. Smokers. No, it no, was, yeah, it was all black crack crackheads. And all yeah. ghettos, all yeah. black cracks. Yeah. All like that was all that was yeah. happening. Yeah. Spread the fear. Spread the fear. These yeah. crack crazed black folks. Yeah, and that shows the credence, you know, to the contention that mandatory sentencing laws are racially biased and fundamentally flawed. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, despite all the evidence to the contrary, America insisted on continuing its stupid ass war on drugs, which has resulted in little, but the highest incarceration per capita of any industrialized nation, and countless stories of broken homes. Destroyed yep. communities, which only continue the cycle of hopelessness, poverty, Absolutely. and desperation that cause people to turn to selling or using drugs in the first place. Absolutely. Who's not going to? Like, seriously, right. like, think about this. Okay. If I'm right. living in poverty 
and I got a, Hey, shit, here's some stuff I can sell, you know, for, you know, a thousand bucks, 2000 bucks, 3000 bucks, even more sometimes, depending on how much I got, who the fuck's not going to do it. Right. I mean, think right. about it. If right. I'm broke, if I'm poor, if I'm starving, I got a family to, to, you know, and this yep. is the option I have. Who's going to, who's not going to do it. Right. Right. Uh, it's absolutely the truth. You know, I mean, you look at this, this giving your time away for next, next to no money. That is not, you're not capable to survive upon this, right. you know, and here's this other option. Come on, come on. Yeah. It's the not human, black or white. It is just human condition, man. It's yeah. survival. And the human cost has not been counted. You know, for every story that we hear, um, hundreds are hundreds more go untold. Oh, sure. Yeah, without a doubt. Without a doubt. You know, we have a flawed system. We desperately have a flawed system. I believe that's why we're we're seeing the ridiculousness come out of the, you know, the the political spaces were just it's getting so ridiculous that people have no choice but to wake the fuck up yeah. and start to realize that we are better together as a human race versus depending upon our governments to provide us or because i don't think that not that the government has ever been up front and you know and, and necessarily for us the people but, you know, there was a bit of security for some in in those systems, you know, like the days of the pension, you know, those those days aren't we're, we're not in existence in those days anymore. My mom's generation, you know, my good friend um, Gary's generation, they get pensions. We won't get pensions yeah. and our kids are probably not going to get pensions. We have to learn to be self-sustaining in order to be self-sustaining. We need each other. Yeah. We are the we are yeah. a mammal that is born to be in community and, 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 and there's so much about, you know, Britain and, and their, their institution of slavery. And, and, and I think that Britain had such a passive way of doing their slavery that American just came out and balls to the wall, just put it out there for the world to see Britain kind of kept their slaves in Caribbean countries. You know, they kind of kept it off of the immediate radar, but you know, for, for the, you know, the people that started America, this, this became like an all out, just, we're just going to do this and we're going to make it okay. Mm -hmm. And you know, fuck how it's going to end up. This is what we want. And it was all about wealth and power. Yep. And every crooked thing in the world comes behind wealth and fucking power, man. It does. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and that's honestly why the, you know, like we're the drug situation, why it still prevails. Oh, sure. You know? I mean, it literally yeah. the legislatures and the cartels, right, that work hand in hand together because you got the legislatures that create harsher penalties, right, because it allows them to get the votes because we tell the people we're going to fix all these problems you know, that are, that are coming in, we're going to start executing drug dealers. <laughs> and, yeah. We're going to uh, keep you safe. Yeah. And the, and then, you know, the more laws you put on, the more valuable things become. And so then the cartels latch onto that. Who's not going to latch onto a bunch of money. And so, you know, then they become, you know, our current greatest enemy of all right now. And this opioid problem, you know, it's funny if you think about this, right. The, you know, we had the, the crack epi- epidemics over. 
but now we have this opioid, but the face of the crisis looks very different, right? Because this time it's yeah. white rural members of society are that are in the spotlight and the coverage has evolved. Yes. Right? Now, instead of this hysterical panic and insistence on law and order, you know, the yep. law and order crackdowns, yeah. <laughs> politicians are pleading. They're pleading for understanding and treatment. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Decriminalization efforts are on the rise. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. It had to hit white, white people. I mean, it's the black people that we got to lock up. We got to lock right. them up, you know, right. but the white people are getting fucked up. We got to do yeah. something. As soon as the white girl started, die, the rich white girl started dying, buddy, yeah. we started paying uh, attention. Yeah. That's you it. Know, now, and, yeah. Now and, we pay attention. Now we pay attention. Now we pay attention. It was never a war on drugs. It was a war on people. And yeah. you and I know that better than most, that that is all that it was. And it was just as, you know, Reagan, Reagan wasn't racist. Yes, the fuck Reagan was racist. Come on. Speaking of that, I got a little video. Oh, uh, you got a little ditty. <laughs> I, I, I've played this one before because um, I think we talked about it during the war on drugs one we did. But mm. um, I think this one just kind of hits home for me when you when you think about this. And it's got Biden in it, too. So despite our best efforts, illegal cocaine is coming into our country at alarming levels and four to five million people regularly use it. Five hundred thousand Americans are hooked on heroin. One in 12 persons smokes marijuana regularly. Regular drug use is even higher among the age group 18 to 25 most likely just entering the workforce. Today, there's a new epidemic, smokable cocaine, otherwise known as crack. It is an explosively destructive and often lethal substance which is crushing its users. It is an uncontrolled fire. And drug abuse is not a so-called victimless crime. Everyone's safety is at stake when drugs and excessive alcohol are used by people on the highways or by those transporting our citizens or operating industrial equipment. Drug abuse costs you and your fellow Americans at least $60 billion a year. From the early days of our administration, Nancy has been intensely involved in the effort to fight drug abuse. Today, there's a drug and alcohol abuse epidemic in this country, and no one is safe from it. Not you, not me, and certainly not our children because this epidemic has their names written on it. Many of you may be thinking, well, drugs don't concern me, but it does concern you. It concerns us all because of the way it tears at our lives and because it's aimed at destroying the brightness and life of the sons and daughters of the United States. As a parent, I'm especially concerned about what drugs are doing to young mothers and their newborn children. Listen to this news account from a f hospital in Florida of a child born to a mother with a cocaine habit. Nearby, a baby named Paul lies motionless in an incubator, feeding tubes riddling his tiny body. He needs a respirator to breathe and a daily spinal tap to relieve fluid buildup on his brain. Only one month old, he's already suffered two strokes now you can see why drug abuse concerns every one of us, all the American family. It's a shame, but we don't know how to rehabilitate. But there is a consensus, and I will cease. A, 
We must make the streets safer. I don't care why someone is a malefactor in society. I don't care why someone is antisocial. I don't care why they become a sociopath. We have an obligation to cordon them off from the rest of society, try to help them, try to change the behavior. That's why we do in this bill. We have drug treatment and we have other treatments to try to deal with it. But they are in jail, away from my mother, your husband, our families. Well, here the rules have changed. If you sell drugs, you will be caught. And when you're caught, you will be prosecuted. And once you're convicted, you will do time. Caught, prosecuted, punished. I'm also proposing that we enlarge, enlarge our criminal justice system across the board, at the local, state, and federal levels alike. We need more prisons, more jails, more courts, more prosecutors. So tonight I'm requesting altogether an almost billion and a half dollar increase in drug-related federal spending on law enforcement. And while illegal drug use is found in every community, nowhere is it worse than our public housing projects. You know, the poor have never had it easy in this world. But in the past, they weren't mugged on the way home from work by crack gangs and their children didn't have to dodge bullets on the way to school. And that's why I'm targeting $50 million to fight crime in public housing projects, to help restore order, and to kick out the dealers for good. I think all that, all that literally kind of fits together, you know? Yeah. Because yeah. you got, we're going to put all of this money in for the projects, you know, so we're going to make sure there's lots of cops down there, you know, yeah. that are arresting everybody. Right? Yeah, yeah. You notice Reagan was like, you know, heroin's a problem, marijuana's a problem, you know, but, and cocaine's a problem, but this crack, this smokable stuff yeah. is the real problem. This is know? the real deal. And then Nancy Reagan goes into the crack baby stuff. Yeah. It's all yeah. bullshit. Yeah. That whole crack yeah. baby. Do you ever hear that story anymore? No. Mothers still smoke crack? Yeah. Where are the crack, crack babies? Is- Crack is still whack. <laughs> <laughs> it was such a bullshit thing that was that came out, you know. So completely, so completely for fear, you know, like, and, and that that whole thing is, you know, I still here comes me and my conspiracy theory. I'll be called, but I still feel like you know, like the government designed this, man. You designed that. Mm-hmm. You keep this going because I, I, you know, I was just talking to my neighbor today, and she has. You know, her husband's in the prison system and the amount of money that is made inside the prison system. You know, it's been a long time since you and I visited, you know, our local prison and, you know, as a as a um, as a as, as a guest, as a participant. Yeah, as a participant. <laughs> and, you know, now there are um, um, vape pens and tablets now that it costs you a dollar to log on to these tablets and yeah. you can communicate with your families, but it's costing so much money. This yeah. is all about money. It's never been about people. It's about money. And we go all the way back to the root of this entire show. We're talking about slavery happened because of money. It was about money, money, power, control. 
I mean, and I, and I will say that once, you know, once the, you know, the government was saying, okay, you got to eliminate slavery. I'm sure it freaked out the South, you know? Oh, it did. That, I mean, financially, they were probably like, we're going to be ruined. Yeah, that's that's exactly what the fear was. We're going to be ruined because, you know, the amount of of slaves once the it was, you know, it was it became outlawed to now bring slavery in was this whole breeding system. And we went from I think at at the time that that slavery was banned, you know, bring importing slaves was was banned. I think there was a hundred thousand or over a hundred thousand between a hundred and two hundred thousand. And in the years since, went all the way up to over four million because of oh well we can't bring them in now we're just going to breed them all and there was just yeah. you know that became they they leaned on all of that how dare you ask us to pay these people we paid for them what kind yeah. of backwards shit I, I i i i'm so glad i can never understand the mentality i really can't but people like that guy in one of your videos that was saying they got along better and they they wanted it that way right well you know I, yeah <laughs> maybe they, they got do. along better who knows but I, they didn't get along better because it was that was their natural way of being they were yeah. scared shitless you know, to make any noise. And I still feel that happening in our country today, not even just simply with that aspect, but there's so many other aspects where fear is used on a daily basis yeah. through mass media to keep us subservient and controlled. Oh, yeah. And it's yeah. it's Tucker Carlson. It hasn't gone away. Woo! <laughs> He's one <laughs> of the best in the business. <laughs> yeah, he is the shit, man. He, he is. is. He is the he is the master at 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 putting fear in people's minds, you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. Riling people up. Oh know, yeah. And and with bullshit. I mean it's Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have an aunt that watches that news channel relentlessly wow. and she can't she can't put together why she's had multiple strokes, you know, all these health problems. And it's probably because you sit in <laughs> front of a fear monger day in and day out. Yeah. I would have an absolute stroke in a coronary myself. Yeah, serious. I mean, it can scare you. Yeah. It can scare Hannity you. Hannity and Tucker Carlson. And, <laughs> I mean, really any of those, even like CNN, all those, like I couldn't sit and it. watch that. You no. Know? I mean, though, no. like I, I sit and watch that some of that crap for the show, you know, when we're putting stuff together. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's gotten so it's the bullshit has gotten so big that it's almost scary. Like, what do you believe anymore? You know, it's all it's all covered in some kind of shit. So it's like if we don't uh, again. You know, there, there's this, there was this, there was this, um, during, during that time and even Jim Crow slavery and all of that, it was thought that the black people were the descendants of Ham, which was Noah's son, I believe that was, a. a a dark spirit or something and this is what they they devise all this shit through religion <laughs> and to to make it stick yeah. and and this is how they but i how does a person you can't look around at all things in creation and see so many different races of human beings yeah. and so many different types of human beings and think that god made one of those things when all of our bodies work the same when 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 all of our yeah. 
everything works the same. What a he's got a different God. skin color. Like what That's the fuck? It. What the you know? fuck? Yeah. Where did come on? Like <laughs> what the fuck? Yeah. Money power. You know how how long does time have to pass before you can say, oh, it, uh, it's all good now? Oh yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. So like yeah yeah I'm with you. You know, that. let's say let's even go with let's even go with um, Jim Crow right at Jim Crow the ending of that everybody was not racist anymore right let's just go with that for a second you know yeah. how yeah. long does it take for you to be over that yeah you know what I mean yeah. I mean yeah. seriously like honestly yeah you're right nobody shit ever yeah that argument yeah yeah I mean how can you just stand there and say get up already yeah. just get yeah. up it's over with get up dust yourself off and let's go yeah sorry no, we that's... sorry we lynched your brother but you know right we're over that now <laughs> yeah we're over that everybody's nice to everybody now just forget about it and let's move yeah. on yeah you know i i wonder i would love to to hear i think so i think that until the majority of of black people feel like you know that that they're in the same in alignment with that with that gentleman until the majority of them feel and maybe there's just a couple that don't i right. think that's when we can kind of think okay well maybe you know maybe we are changing some things but i'd be i'd like to know if the majority of people feel like we're you know in equality and that corporations aren't yeah. racist they're fixed at all and yeah. you know texaco and papa john and uh, yeah. you know yeah there's yeah, no racism yeah. in there there's you know, no racism because I mean, they have a program that teaches about not being racist. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And they, and they help give people. So race. we say we're not racist. So we're not racist. That's right. We're not racist. The South isn't racist. Yeah. The South is not that's racist. such a crock of shit. You know what I mean? You think about it <laughs> no. like that's an, that's like the worst argument. The reason black people get pulled over is because they are commit more crimes, you know, yeah. it's just, <laughs> fundamentally, of course he's sitting in a suit. So the whole, the whole money and the whole power thing, you know, he's partaking of all of it. So, you know, yeah. hey, if I'm drinking the tea, everybody drink the tea. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. Nah. See, I'm, nah. I'm wearing glasses so you don't know who I am. That's right. That's yeah. right. I'm, You're I'm, unrecognizable. I'm unrecognizable. <laughs> Where did Eric go? <laughs> Where's Eric? Oh, hey, here I am. Oh, hey, there he is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that guy was awesome, though. That guy was awesome. That was, that was funny, know. you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He, he was one of those great ones. You kind of, like, break his arguments apart very easily. <laughs> you know, it's even so his effort. quotes of the Bible, you know? Yeah. Uh, do you got anything else you wanted to say on Jim Crow? um other than it was all well, fucked up <laughs> what a fucked up situation and yeah. and god i really do hope that i live long enough to see us truly come to a place of true equality because man we bleed the same our livers and kidneys work the same like yeah. we are the same divine sovereign human yeah. beings Absolutely. and i'd love to see a world where we where we are able to walk like that in it you yeah, know. because it's just a bunch of fearful pussies out there. That's what Amen. that's what hates about, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's that's fear, exactly right. You know, it's fear. You're gonna take my jobs. You're gonna take my well, fucking work harder. Right, right, you know I mean? right, 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 <laughs> right. Get out of that lack mentality, man. You know, there's yeah. a place for all of us. There's a place for all of us here, yeah. and you know, we're better together. Like, and we're better together. And you know, I do want to put this out here. I would love to hear from you know from people that are are going through this 
you know, what is your experience about? Yeah. Let us know yeah. your experience. If you're a person that lived through Jim Crow and you want to 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 comment and talk to us about some of that, please, you know, make sure that you do. Like we want to hear from you. This is a this is an interactive show that 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 we want to hear because I'm open to learn and expand. And Eric's one of the most open and expanding human beings I know, hence why we're <laughs> here together so you know like i'm open to expand i want to learn tell me your experience please if you were again like a white person well you are a white person if you were <laughs> a, you back in those days <laughs> that'd be really fucked <laughs> texas okay um and how would you stand where would you stand i mean because again it's like you know i keep rolling back to this you know it's like you go back to a like the Nazis in Germany, right? Yeah, yeah. And I was like, okay, you can do this. We'll put a bullet in your head, or you can do that. Yeah, you do this. You know. Yeah, yeah. How you crazy know, is that? It's 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 insane. And I would love to. I would love to think that I would be. You'd take a bullet just in the head? as yeah that I'd take the bullet in the head. But to be honest, man, I don't know, and I think that that probably would have really reduced me and and just living in that place of dual integrity you know what i mean yeah. but i mean it had to be a scary situation yeah. and because a lot of people think like you know oh, white people are fucked up because of the jim crow stuff but you know at the same time there was like you were sort of locked into this thing too you know what i mean like you had rules you had rules too you had these rules that you had to follow they had rules that they had to follow at least that's the way i'm i'm picturing it you know I wasn't alive back then, but that's kind of how I'm picturing it. Well, there's there's these wonderful movies and one of the, my favorite movies in the world to watch. And, you know, because I'm so immersed in 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 this whole thing, I just want to know what it was like. But but I, when I watch the movie that help, I think about that a lot. And I think about that one, you know, a couple situations in that movie. And I think, wow, it it makes it more real to watch that you know there are there were there were white people locked into that same you know systematic situation that you know how do you react yeah. and again I, i'd want to think that i would react stoically and would do the right thing you know but i don't know i, I don't know yeah. what i could do i know yeah. i know i couldn't treat anybody badly right. but would i have been as loud for you know, when it came yeah. to the '60s, I'd absolutely have walked with right. with Martin Luther King Jr. Right, I would right. have walked in that whole <clears throat> situation. But yeah. we go back before that, man. That's a scary situation. But yeah. you know, I, I I growing up in the South, I did I did. There was this this, you know, it wasn't ever talked about in my home. And my grandfather was one of the most beautiful open-minded non-judgmental humans that i've ever known to this day and you know my best friend was you know a, a black girl named peggy moore and she was my true best friend mm. and i remember him you know asking me questions about her coming to spend the night and then i do remember her family not you know not being very mm accommodating for our friendship and i didn't understand it then but i'll tell you as a person who grew up in the south the 70s mid 70s and 80s and even you know towards some of the 90s there was this unconscious thing that came through 
the majority of the surroundings of young white children that black people were much different. And a lot of the fear came along that too. And I grew up, you know, with, with names being called to people that we didn't understand, but it was still coming through the generational line. And I think Mm -hmm. it's going to be generations after this, we can start to change it now. And I no, believe it's going to take are, a long time, though. But it's going to take generations. Yeah, it's going to take generations. And I hope we can do our part. It's got to get to a point to where people don't care anymore. Absolutely. Like that's Absolutely. like that's the place that it's got to get to. It's like oh, you know, like we don't give a fuck. You're green. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, hey, uh, I want to thank everybody for tuning in to walk a mile in my shoes my name is eric mccoy and i am with lona curry that's right i'm reverend lona curry your transgender mentor that's right i'm gonna (laughs) use it baby i worked hard for that and it's been an honor to be sitting in the presence of my great friend eric mccoy tonight make sure you check out his amazing podcast high while clean on youtube and all the uh major podcast platforms as well make sure you get Check him out. He's doing great work everywhere.